G'day, mate. Forty here. I was just thinking, how do we how do we spread monkeypox and multiculturalism and vaccine mandates and, and feminism and gay pride parades to uncontacted people? I mean, these poor people they're, they're living in these primitive traditions, and how do we bring them the benefits of of Western civilization? We're, we're just allowing them to languish without feminism. I I, I think that's uh, very sad. So let me get my act together for a minute here and play a little from Decoding But Sam Harris had a kerfuffle because he he said it was fine if people didn't give a crap about the Hunter Biden thing. And he also, he worded some things badly because he said, like, if there was a conspiracy to hide damaging information, that that would be fine mm. as long as Trump didn't get elected. So he, he said various things and he said it on trigonometry and they have a MAGA-inclined audience. So the kind of MAGA-leaning side of the heterodox sphere got very upset. Mm. And they kind of took it in a weird way as a vindication, like Sam Harris is revealing that the left admits they, you know, they... They suppressed the Hunter Biden laptop story yeah it's like sam, sam harris, harris he doesn't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he doesn't he doesn't know he actually prefaced it by saying i don't i haven't done much research into the topic i don't really know it's and so like <laughs> that's right they they should believe him about that because <laughs> yes they should so you know one it's his opinion but two he doesn't actually know anything about what occurred there so like who cares you know the, the the one thing about it matt as we've talked about offline is that with the hunter biden laptop story there's such an obvious double standard because all of these folks that get so righteously indignant about it they would never expect the right-wing media to cover like on the front pages some story about Trump Jr. Mm. in the week to the election, mm. right? If the Democrats were pushing hard some story about Trump's second son or whatever, yeah. they, they wouldn't care yeah. if it wasn't covered in right-wing media and it would never be covered. If okay, who the hell are uncontacted people? And so luckily there is Wikipedia. So I was just thinking about how in our modern world view, it's a virtue to leave some people uncontacted without the benefits of Western civilization, uh, without the benefits of vaccine mandates and multiculturalism, right? So it, it's cool that we leave some people uncontacted without gay pride parades, but other people, we absolutely have to contact them and, and you know, shove the benefits of feminism and gay pride and uh, transgender rights onto their society. So I was just thinking about how there are, you know, peoples who have very little contact with the outside world. And the proper term, I know you want to use the proper term, and the proper term is uncontacted people, right? So here we're looking at members of an uncontacted tribe photographed in 2012, and we have some in the Indian Ocean on, on tiny islands where where missionaries have, have tried to contact them, have uh, canoed out to them, and then been eaten and killed. So, so which people are we supposed to leave uncontacted? And which people must we, at the point of a sword and the, the point of a barrel, contact them and give them the blessings of Western civilization? Give them monkeypox. Give them, I mean, give them the vaccine first. 
uh, give them PrEP, give them COVID vaccines, give them feminism, give them gay pride parades, give them, you know, constitutional democracy and human rights. I mean, how, how do we allow all these people just to languish? I mean, where's your missionary spirit, guys? There are people in the world living without the benefits of feminism. And are we just going to sit back and say, oh, these poor benighted brown people, they don't deserve the benefits of feminism. They don't deserve the benefits of liberal democracy. They don't deserve the benefits of having credit cards and high-speed internet. Are we just going to sit back? Are we just going to be indifferent to, to their suffering? Are we going to go, oh, no big deal. I mean, just because they're, they're, they're brown people and they seem to want to be left alone. So, therefore, we're not going to give them human rights. I mean, how dare we j just sit back here and, and not give these people you know, all the benefits of our civilization? And sure, there, there'll be some bad things that come along with it, like, like monkeypox. But I just don't think we can be indifferent. So Wikipedia says, uncontacted peoples are communities or groups of indigenous peoples living without sustained contact with neighboring communities and the world community. So we have, we have communities in our midst who would like to largely live uncontacted by the outside. All right? There, there are people who want to preserve their own neighborhoods. Uh, there are people who want to preserve their own uh, men's club gatherings, right? We have all these people in our midst who want to live uncontacted lives, but we don't allow that, right? That's that's a, a violation of feminist principles, right? We, I think we need to conquer these bigoted ethno-nationalism, uh, nationalists, and, and show them a, a better way. Uh, not not. Not for our sake, but for their sake. I mean, if these uncontacted people are going to survive, they will have to learn to become multicultural. And I think our community is going to play a major role in that. I mean, these poor uncontacted people, they've not yet learned how to be multicultural, and they need us to educate them. I think we are going to be part of the throes of that transformation, which absolutely must take place. I mean, these uncontacted people... These, these tribes, they're not going to be the monolithic societies that they once were in the last centuries. And I think we need to be at the center of this huge transformation that these uncontacted people need to make. They need to go into multicultural mode, and they need to go into multicultural mode right now. Right? And we may be resented for our leading role in bringing these people into multiculturalism, but without our leading role and without that transformation these uncontacted people will not survive. I mean, how could they survive without COVID vaccines? Right, so legal protections make estimating the number of uncontacted tribes challenging, but estimates range between 100 and 200 tribes, numbering up to 10,000 people. So there are up to 10,000 individuals in the world who are living without the benefits of feminism and multiculturalism. They have no trans rights, right? The majority of these tribes live in South America, particularly Brazil. So I'm raising money. Any super chats that you throw down right now will support our missionary projects to Brazil to contact these tribes and, and bring them the benefits of multiculturalism. So our knowledge of uncontacted people comes mostly from encounters with neighboring indigenous communities and aerial footage. So... Most indigenous groups have had some form of contact with other people, so the term uncontacted refers to a lack of sustained contact. 
All right. So it may be like you and women. All right. You, you may feel like you're uncontacted with the opposite sex, but you've had some form of contact over the years. It's just it's been a long time. So you probably think, what does the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights refer to these people? It calls them indigenous people in voluntary isolation. All right. So they are defined by their general rejection of contact with anyone outside of their own people. So what, what if, I'm concerned, guys, what if tribes within our midst, what if communities within our midst become inspired by this and say, we would like to no longer maintain contact with outside peoples. We wish to return to isolation. And then they don't uphold gay rights they don't uphold transgender rights. They don't uphold voting rights. They don't uphold rights for women. Are we just going to sit back and be indifferent if, if these ideas, like these ideas are contagious. I'm concerned that ethno-nationalists in our midst may, may look at uncontacted peoples as, as some kind of model going forward and say, hey, if it's great that these these people remain uncontacted, why is it wrong if we wish to remain uncontacted? Right, so you're probably wondering, 40, what do international organizations say that we should call these people? And so they emphasize calling them indigenous peoples in isolation or in voluntary isolation. They've also been called, but this is this is kind of frowned upon hidden peoples, uncontacted tribes, or very incorrectly, lost tribes. So whatever you do, please don't call these people lost tribes. So you're probably wondering, Forty, what do international organizations say we should be doing? And we should be protecting indigenous peoples' environment and lands, protect them from exploitation or abuse, and have no contact to prevent the spread of modern diseases. And I just think this is so dangerous. And we have religious groups in our midst. We have cultural groups in our midst. We have ethno-nationalists in our midst who want the very same protection for their communities. They want to be protected from exploitation. They want to be protected from abuse. And they want to minimize or cut off contact with the outside to prevent the spread of modern diseases. And so do we allow them? this sort of autonomy, I mean, this is not who we are. It's only from the oppression. Racism and xenophobia. I mean, the whole, this whole definition, uncontacted peoples, right? That is based in xenophobia. Right? And I don't understand how you can have international organizations saying that we need to protect these people and have no contact with them to prevent the spread of modern diseases. But then what if you have traditional communities who say don't want monkeypox in their midst and then they use that as an excuse 
to marginalize and and oppress and, and commit verbal violence against members of the LGBTQ community, right? Uh, this could be contagious. This type of thinking, this xenophobia, this this bigotry could be incredibly contagious. So governments want to extract natural resources. Well, we're not like that. We're not contacting these people to extract natural resources, all right? We only want to contact them to bring them the glories of feminism and multiculturalism and voting rights. Are their voting rights protected, these uncontacted peoples in the Acre region of, of Brazil? Like, I fear their voting rights are not protected. I fear that the LGBTQ members among them may be oppressed right now, that, that the women are not given fully open opportunities to advance professionally. So there was one tribe in Colombia, the Nukak people, who were contacted by an evangelical Christian group, and the tribe was receptive to trade and moved in closer to have contact with these evangelicals. It led to an outbreak of respiratory infections, violent clashes with narco-traffickers, and the death of hundreds of members of these tribes, more than half the tribe. Eventually, the Colombian government forcibly relocated the tribe to a nearby town where they received food and government support, but reported as living in, in poverty. So the threats to the Nukak tribe are shared by all people in isolation, particularly the outside world's desire to exploit the, their lands. So we have indigenous rights activists, and, and this is so scary because on the surface it sounds noble, but this could be twisted and misused by bad people in our midst who... who want to oppress women and oppress LGBTQ communities and, and want to be left alone. So indigenous rights activists say that these indigenous people in isolation, they should be left alone. The contact will interfere with their right to self-determination as peoples. Well, what about communities in our midst, religious, ethnic, cultural communities in our midst who also want self-determination, right? What about people in our midst who want to choose isolation out of fear of contact with contagion, contamination, and exploitation. This could just take off like, like a wildfire. Right? These ideas are so dangerous. And, and I, I, I rely on you to be discreet and not share this with, with anyone who, who can't handle this information. So Rustin says, Dirt Tribes in Brazil where vegetable stocks around their penis, the first thing they need is definitely female voting rights. Absolutely. Then we've got the Sentinelese people in the North Sentinel Islands, which lies in the Bay of Bengal. And these people are so xenophobic, all right? They reject contact. Right? And when people try to contact them, they get killed. They've been living in isolation. They've been called the most isolated people in the world. They've lived isolated for thousands of years. There are about uh, 50 people there, and uh, individuals have occasionally tried to contact them, even though th that's against the law. So there was an American missionary who was killed by the Sentinelese during an illegal expedition to the island. He had intended to convert the tribe to Christianity. So I, I'm not so backward that I want to convert these people to Christianity. I, I don't want to convert them to anything. I just want to raise their awareness. I just want to expose them to the full humanity 
of marginalized people. I, I, I don't want to convert them to anything. I, I just want to give them the benefits of science. I just want to give them the benefits of, of our discoveries of liberalism and, and human rights and, and voting rights and, and civil rights. I don't want to exploit them. I, I don't want to do anything but share, you know, share reality with them, right? The, the reality of LGBTQ people. There are 40 uncontacted tribes living in West Papua region in Indonesia. And what's really scary is there is no dedicated government agency to protecting these indigenous groups. So what we need to do is we need to raise awareness of the existence of uncontacted tribes and raise money and let's go there. And together we can share the benefits of love and inclusion, civil rights, human rights, liberal rights, gay rights, women's rights. I mean, I know we, we, we disagree, right? I, I know we disagree on some things. Like we disagree over vaccine mandates, but surely we can all agree how important it is that we bring the gifts of feminism and LGBTQ rights and, and voting rights and civil rights, just just those as a bare minimum to these uncontacted people who just you know want to be left alone. And let's see, Rustin, do, do you agree with me? It's time to bring the benefits of uh, multiculturalism to these people. <laughs> sure. Sure. Uh, I, I have a, a quick thing for you, Luke, and I, I got to get off here soon. But isn't this just a way for to make people feel guilty about the success of certain cultures over others? Hmm. Could you expand on that? Okay. So when when the European powers went to Africa and actually built up the infrastructure and, and societies, However, those societies formed, I mean, you could argue about the, the different tribes and stuff and the eternal conflict is always going to happen. But they were blamed then for, oh, the, the noble African, you know, he wants his country back. He doesn't want these things or he can handle them. So you're supposed to feel guilty about that. But then when you see deprived people in, you know, like the, the Amazon with, um, you know, people with no clothes on, eking out a very low existence we're supposed to feel guilty for that too. Like, how can we help these people without intervening in their life culture? But you know, you can't do that because then you're some bigot. Right. Well, we, we need to keep instilling guilt in people, Rustin, because like particularly white people, if they're not weighed down by guilt, then they might act in like assertive and, and, you know, just all sorts of ways that we can't comprehend. So I just think it's really important that we keep them, you know, in the shackles of guilt in case they, you know, start feeling confident in in their own identity. I you mean, you're, you're, um, well, like for, for me as an American, we sort of wiped out the Indians. Um, yes. Uh, the, but as an Australian, you still have abos amongst yes. you. Yes. Um, obviously they can't exist in a, English style society, but you're supposed to feel guilty. I mean, do people in Australia feel guilty about this? Well, the, the, the good people do, uh, Rustin, yeah. you know, the, the enlightened people do, uh, the, you know, the, the unenlightened people, well, they don't feel guilty, but 
they just live at a very low level of consciousness. What, what do you think the percentage is? I mean, you know more about Australia than I do. I, I would say a hundred years ago from, I think one of the videos that you played, I think maybe 95% of people did not care at all. Uh, how, how much has that changed over the last century? Uh, the more educated, like the more people who go to university, the, the more people care. So the, the more incentives there are to care, the more people care. So if you, if you want to belong to a certain social group, so say you want to fit in and succeed in the legal profession or in academia or in the educational complex or in culture, then you're strongly incentivized to care about this because if you don't care, then you're just not going to fit in to those aspects where the left dominates the high ground. Do you see any way that that becomes, that that inverts? Like, I think we've gone, gone like a, a moral inversion over, especially over the last 30 years, but like 70, 100 years. I mean, do you see any situation where that will turn? for the better or are we just riding down the the uh the slide to um collapse uh, i definitely don't believe the latter i don't believe that collapse is inevitable i don't believe that the future is already written so i guess that leaves yeah i think it's possible to change elites i mean that's happened before elites do change and so the the left have been very successful and so we should probably let's let's just take George Soros for example. George Soros has been incredibly influential. He's been incredibly successful. He's got an incredible bang for his buck when when he has donated and intervened in, in societies. So maybe we should be learning from how people like George Soros have been so effective because I mean in the 2020 election Democrats were far more effective than Republicans at changing uh, voting rules, say, with regard to mail-in ballots. So it used to be if you mailed in your ballot and you didn't do it correctly, your vote was invalidated. But the Democrats changed it. So if you mailed in your ballot, uh, they, they reduced scrutiny. And then if you did it so incorrectly, they gave you an opportunity to fix the problem. So go ahead. No, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt it. How, how does this change? Well, we, we need to learn how they become so effective you know, how is George Soros so effective? Like he gets far more bang for his buck than people on the right. So we need to learn from them. What did they do th that helped them to become so effective? And then we need to become effective. And being effective may not be, you know, identical with doing what feels good. You know, being effective may not be identical with doing what is popular, but we need to put more emphasis on what works rather than what feels good. I, I guess I would agree if, if the, if the opposition was a willing opponent, it seems like the opposition is not. And, I, and I'll give an example. Uh, I don't want to give away too much about myself, but um, after 2020, uh, the, the, the flag of, of the state was changed uh, because some, you know, some, career criminal guy high as a kite died in police custody, a state 1,500 miles away has to change its flag. Who stood up for that? No one. No one in the state stood up for that. Everyone folded like a paper bag. And they're supposed to be the opposition to the, the left. So where is our 
where 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 is the 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 road end when an, a supposed opposition is no opposition at all? It's almost okay. like a rear guard. Well, first of all, people have to understand what's going on. So let me give you an analogy. It, it used to be that you had feudal lords, right? You had just like conservatives believe that a man's home is his castle, right? So you used to have a feudal lord who who ruled in, in a particular area. And then when, when power increasingly became centralized in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries in Europe, the feudal lord, to maintain any power, he had to go to court. Now, for the feudal lord in his own home, in his own castle, he could belch, he could burp, he could say, you know, F, you know, this group, F that group. He, you know, he could be, he could laugh at inappropriate jokes, right? He could say bigoted homophobic, racist, and anti-Semitic things, and it didn't affect his status or power. But once he went to court, he could no longer belch. He could no longer laugh at inappropriate jokes. He had to conform to the ethos at court. So one way of understanding the liberal versus conservative difference is that liberals play by court rules and conservatives play by feudal rules where a man's home is his castle, and if he wants to you know, laugh at a homophobic joke, he, he has every right to. So we, we need to understand how, how things have changed. So the, the liberal is, is more like the modern, the, the conservative is more like the, the pre-modern, has, has more aspects of the pre-modern, has more aspects of a man's home is his castle. So we, we need to understand why it feels like the game is just rigged and tilted against us. And... Conservative media, by and large, does a really poor job of explaining it. So in, in academic language, their explanations for why we're playing on a rigged playing field are underdetermined. They're not really explaining what's going on. And so we have to understand what's really going on, why the playing field is rigged, to then be effective at rectifying a, a rigged playing field. You know, I think it's, um, at least for me, it seems to be easier to point out, you know, faults, but you know, I don't have the answers. I'm just asking questions. I, you know, I think one of the most, I mean, you, you seem to enjoy him as well. And I think he has some interesting things to say, but the Tucker Carlson, for mm -hmm. example, yes. he's like the one, he's like the one side of the, the opposition where he has some very good points, but he's seen, he kind of steps up to the line, but at the end of the day, he, Maybe because he has to, probably because he has to, he he still adopts like a leftist morality, right? Like oh, equal rights, you know, every, you know, all this sort of handholding stuff. But then on the other end, you have like the alt right, which said things to be funny, like oh, in, in very in, in in a lot of ways, very inappropriate things. I'm not sure how much of the people actually believed it. Um, uh, or, or not, but just to sort of like, you know, shake the, shake the bars a little bit. They were provocative. Well, the alt-right obviously failed. And I don't know if Tucker Carlson is going to go anywhere, except for people just watching. Oh, I, there has to be a different way, I think. I don't know what that way is, but it doesn't seem like either of those approaches have done anything. Well, we want, we want, we know one hasn't done anything, but the, the Tucker Carlson approach, I'm not sure if you can unite all the boomers behind that if you still adopt leftist morality. Right. So conservatives, you and I know that even if Republicans sweep the elections in the midterms and sweep the 2024 election so that there's a Republican president, a Republican Senate, a Republican House, we will still be oppressed. 
Right. We still would not be able to say what we think in, in polite society. So what's going on is much deeper than elections. And, and what's what's going on is that we, we need to understand you know, how we got here and what's what's really going on. So, for example, a, a you know, a light, low IQ approach is to say that the 2020 elections were rigged. A higher IQ approach was to say the Democrats are more effective at changing rules so that their voters would uh, turn out and have their votes counted compared to Republicans. So that's one example where the more accurate you are, I think, the more powerful you get. But right now we live in a world where what I believe in and what you believe in is an obvious hero system. We, we both believe in God. We both believe in, in the Bible. We both believe in traditional morality. So we have a, a transcendent moral code that we subscribe to. And so to the to the left, you know, this is primitive, you know, folk ways, medieval ways of thinking that that people should transcend. What we haven't done a good job of pointing out is that the left has its own hero system. So they regard their way of thinking as transcending all hero systems. But they also have, have developed their own hero system, which is essentially you know, an extension of court, court morality, where there is things like uh, ethical BDSM. Right? From, a, from a traditional perspective, <laughs> that's ridiculous. Like sex is such an all powerful you know force or you know transformative force that the idea of maintaining you know ethical rules during bdsm uh just seems silly to us uh feminism for example has removed from women the the virtues of chastity and, and monogamy and and without them women are helpless against predatory male you know sexual aggression so therefore they have to make up all this stuff about rape culture etc so we need to get down to brass tacks, we need to be clear, you know, why do we have quote-unquote rape culture? Because feminists have removed from women their their most important, powerful protections against rape culture. It's not orthodox women and traditional Christians who are being victimized by Harvey Weinstein or Jeffrey Epstein. It's women who have bought into the, the feminist narrative that there are no virtues in chastity and, and monogamy. Yeah, well, my, my golden rule and what I would tell every is that particular example, every young woman, I would tell them to never enter a uh, bedroom of a man that you're not that you don't want to have sex with, because there's no um, there's no uh, outcome that would that be, could be positive that would outweigh the negative. But kind of going back to um, our our overall, I, I, I know I get your point about let's say that the election stuff, like if, if I'm more in elevated society i can give sort of him and haw about you know oh you know the laws weren't done correctly and and and, and blah 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 but what does that get me at the end of the day doesn't get me a victory uh by trump um all the laws seemingly are still there or if they're if they've been changed they won't be enforced well what does that what does that really done it gives you the potential of of victory because you are now seeing what the real problem is so let's say water is leaking down from my ceiling all right and and just wrecking my life all right if i can accurately find out the source of that leaking water i'm in a much better position to solve the problem and so if if say we have leaked voter integrity then the more accurately we can diagnose the problem the more likely we are to have some chances at uh, remediating it no, I, I agree. If if everything was fair, uh, I think as soon as you, and we've seen this before, as soon as people start implementing uh, 
you know, voting, um, uh, procedure and this type of stuff, it just go, it just goes to DOJ and then they get struck down by, you know, because apparently getting an ID once every five years, you know, throwing up 20 bucks to get an ID once every five years is racist. Uh, so I, I don't see where there is a will of the people in power to have a fair system. It's, and, and I know politics is not about fairness. It's about winning, uh, rewarding friends and punishing enemies. I, I figure I, it seems to me that one side is willing to do what is necessary and the other side acts like we're just, you know, uh, at a country club where everyone is playing by the, by fair and, you know, fair rules and it's not fair. And, yeah. and I don't see our way out of that uh, dynamic. Well, we, we have to become clear about how the, the playing field is tilted. And so, I mean, people like Ann Coulter and, and Tucker Carlson and Ben Shapiro and, uh, that Goldberg guy used to be with National Review. They, at times, you know, they have some insights, but it, it's very shallow, generally speaking. We have to get down to the root cause. And what we're talking about at the root is a different view of life, right? The modern versus the pre-modern, the, the magical enchanted view of life where we see, you know, God is present, where we see the flag is not just a symbol, but it's a, a sacred it's a sacred object. It's it's a class clash of cosmologies, or if you want to talk in, in neuroscience term, it, you know, it's a class a clash in the way our brains work and get rewards. Every organism is driven to try to create an environment in which it will thrive, and the left, generally speaking, has been more effective than the right at creating an environment in which it will thrive. My my fear comes from. And, and if this is just the way the dynamic is, my, my fear comes from, um, like, let's use the Soviet Union for, as an example. You know, they tried this experiment, which was against reality and nature, and it failed, and it just collapsed all, all, almost all of a sudden. Um, but it, but when, it, when it broke up, Ukraine was still Ukraine, Russia was still Russia, Kazakhstan was Kazakhstan, you know, the... the these nations within the Soviet Union remained, for the most part, nations. I know there's a lot of different ethnicities and things like, and, and then the spread throughout. I, I get that part. It, it doesn't seem that the, I don't say inevitable, because nothing is inevitable uh, except for death, but the path that we're going down, when things become too great for, society to maintain itself i don't see such a sort of nice neat separation um it's going to end up more tribal i think and which is which is bad for everyone uh, and I, I don't see how we can have uh, a better um descent but i, I think you disagree i don't i don't you uh if i if i'm right you don't think we're in a descent or do you? No, I think we're definitely descending in some ways. We're, we're probably improving in, in other ways. Uh, I, I do think the more we talk a, a civil war, the more likely we are to bring it about, which is not to say we shouldn't talk about it. But uh, I, do, I do think that, uh, that the way we speak, you know, translates in basically into the way we live. And, and uh, I don't think uh, America's in imminent danger of, of a civil war. I, I what what you said has to be possible, but 
I mean, as a man of God, you can't be pessimistic. I mean, as as a man of faith, you can't just uh, uh, give up. I mean, you want to make God real in the world. So, for example, God's only real in the world if you are doing things and I am doing things to make God real in the world. Like, if we're not praying, if we're not supporting a religious community, if we're not practicing, you know, God-based uh, commandments and God-based philosophies, then we aren't doing anything to make God real in the world. So as a, as a man of faith, I, I, would, I would think that you would want to do what you can to make God real in the world, and you would also abstain from despair. Yeah, no, I, I, I agree with that. Uh, I, I would, I, I'm sort of like um, the, uh, what, what's the, I heard this from someone, it's the Antonio Gramsci line, um, uh, pessimism of, ah, I can't remember, but it's like optimism of like the, the will. So right. I, it's like I can see like things have definitely descended and, I don't want to say falling apart, but, and, and I don't think the collapse is like going to happen in two years. Uh, whenever the demographic change happens, I think you'll, I, I think you have seen collapse in other ways. Like the city, I, I live about an hour away from a city that is in real time civilizational collapse. Um, their water system has been broken down for years. They're one of the most dangerous violent cities in the United States. And it's just not going to end well. Um, it, but I don't see how, unless there is a man on a white horse, how any of that's going to change. Because the people in charge don't care about that. Um, like in a lot of African countries, it's all about shoving your pockets full of money uh, before you get kicked out or replaced. You know, that's that's how I view like the, the African governments. They just kind of steal until they get thrown out and the next guy comes in and steals. I, I don't know if the people in power, the ruling elite in this country, desire to have anything change. I guess their their motivations may be it's on purpose for some people to suffer while they uh, succeed, or they just don't have a will to do what is necessary. Because what is necessary is going to be hard, especially in modern times, what you would have to do. Uh, but that's the, the, to me, that's the only way to remedy any of this, to make any of this this area livable. And I don't see where people want to do that. And I don't know if it's, it's because it's against their morality or they just consider themselves detached from the people they rule over or don't care. I, 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 what, what do you think about that? I, I think you get an emotional payoff from despair, and I don't know what it is, but I, I'm assuming that the 2018 and 2020 elections were so painful and life experiences that you've had are so painful that to hope is too painful for you. And so you are inoculating yourself from from the pain of hoping for a better world by by choosing despair, and, and I don't think it's necessary. I don't think the elite are are different constitutionally from you and me. I just think they've had they've had different life experiences and they see see the world differently. And I disagree with the elite on, on plenty of issues. So it's not like I think they're just out for 
you know, that they're saints. I think they're flawed human beings just like you and me. I mean, I'm sure you've said and done horrible things. I've certainly said and done horrible things. I've been wrong about a ton of things. I'm sure you've been wrong about a ton of things. And I don't see that our elite is, you know, so much worse than any other country's elite. Like, which which countries do you think have an incredibly superior elite to America's? Well, I... I... I don't know that much about the world. I I didn't mean it in that way to say other countries are better. Um, then we're living. Any... We're in this world. We have to talk in, in this world. So, if, if we like despair about our our elite, then we our options are in this world that we can't compare our elite against some you know, transcendent standard that nobody's elite is living up to. So when you look at the options, I don't see how America is just so much worse off than alternative elites and alternative countries. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that's, that's a good point. I, I would say that as, as a whole, you know, America is a pretty nice place. But if you live in Jackson, Mississippi, America's not a very nice place. And but but there's no country what, that that doesn't have places that aren't very nice. But are people will people in those places willing to do what is necessary to make it more palatable for someone? You know, at well, so it, for, it for example, I mean, I assume in this city that this city is dominated by low IQ people, and so it's harder to keep a low IQ you know population in good conditions. Go ahead. No, so for my my uh, my solution, and uh, again, all this would be under the law, in in a sense, um, not nothing uh, extra legal um, uh, or, or illegal going on there. I would have a zero tolerance policy. You commit violence with a weapon, the gallows may be in your future. You know, in the old English way, and so. Oh, there I is no one hundred percent agree with that. Yes, there is no will to do that because even if you're low IQ, and yes, we know low IQ people commit uh, across all different groups more crime because uh, they're lower impulse control, less um, ability, lower ability to see the future and their actions. All I understand this, but just because you're low IQ does not mean you should be you know walking to school. You should have gunshots shot at you. You know, you, you know, coming your way and stuff. I, criminals need to be removed from society, and if you have too many of them, well, you, you know, you just, you know, I think more liberal use of the death penalty uh, and a faster use of the death penalty. But there doesn't seem to be a will to stop crime in this country, and the way to stop crime is to get rid of criminals. Yeah, I, use, I, I just I use that as a very yeah. simple example. No, I, a very I, I, simple I example. Yes, yes, I, I agree with that. We we need to get back to incarcerating criminals for a long oh, time and and you know executing them according to law. Go ahead. Yes, according to the law, and and I and we know and and I think this is brought up. It's it's theorized, I guess. There's no way to prove this, but the reason why Europeans may be so law abiding is because throughout the medieval times. You were dealt with, you know, criminals were dealt with. Um, and we know that criminality shows up at about from, well, because most crimes committed by men and it, and it comes, a, comes about when they're entering manhood. 
So, you know, a generation of taking care of criminals may actually make the future population more law abiding because criminals then can't reproduce. Exactly. Um, so, but, but, you know, these, even though these people have nothing in common with me, I still don't want to see them suffer in such terrible ways, especially when it's about an hour from me, you know, I, but there's no will to do it. And the ruling elite don't seem to care. Uh, the people that live there that aren't really elites don't seem to care w without a will, without a, a, a will to, to solve issues. It doesn't seem like any of this will be solved. And we are just on the descent to whatever we're on the descent to. I, I don't think our future is South Africa. Uh, but it may not be that far away. <laughs> How long have you been this pessimistic? Um, since I realized, and I don't know when, when exactly, maybe 2016, uh, when I realized, I, I view the Trump phenomenon as a revolution. Uh, legal revolution uh, through voting. Um, it was a shot across the bow to our elites that we don't like you, and we're gonna we're gonna put in this this man who is anything but virtuous. Or, <laughs> uh, but then the, there was a counter revolution, and the counter revolution won out. And it seems like they're making sure that there's uh, no condition for revolution again within the current rules, like we're voting is concerned because that's the rules we live under currently. Right. So and, we, we have to learn from why has the opposition to Trump been more effective than the Trump movement? I mean, would you agree that, you know, society is always run by elites and that there's no counter uh, elite to take over from the ones that rule currently. And they just, they just waited him out. They've, they surrounded him by, people more sympathetic to the elite cause than his cause. And he was sort of neutralized and, um, well, I agree. Societies are always run by elites. Uh, I believe that Donald Trump played a huge role in his own ineffectiveness. He was not organized. He was not good at running things. He was self-destructive. He was self-centered. He was childish. And the opposition to him was usually more effective than what he was able to mount on his own side. Do you think that is a, a, a situation that derives from in any sort of populist movement? It by nature is, is lacking elites and, yes. and, and real effectiveness. Yes. Because you're basically yes. getting a normal guy that's doing stuff, right? So it's kind of almost like you're caught between a rock and a hard place where the only way to counteract the elites is to have a populist movement, which by definition is lacking elites who can get stuff done. Right. So what you need are counter elites who harness the populist movement and say incorporate populist talking points but they have to be, you know, more than just populist. They also have to be elite. And elites do change. So you can have counter elites overthrowing ruling elites. Do you see anyone in the in the near future that... Uh... Well, yeah, I, I think there, there are reasons for optimism. Remember 
a, a year or two ago, we were despairing about being able to have live streams where you could, you know, honestly talk about stuff. And since then, we've had the rise of Odyssey and uh, we, the rise of other live streaming platforms and the rise of Rumble, which is not 100% free speech, but I haven't had a problem with any of my videos that I uploaded to Rumble. Now, I did get three tentative strikes. I appealed and won them all. And then as a reaction to those three tentative strikes, I removed about 15 videos. But, I mean, Rumble is pretty close to a free speech zone. So, yeah, the right wing has created, you know, alternative media of varying quality. And Rumble is, you know, far better than nothing. So, a year or two or three ago, we were despairing about the potential for doing live streams where you could have free discussion. And things have gotten better because people have taken action to provide th those spaces. And there are you know, training grounds for, for future elites, such as the Claremont Institute and Claremont Fellowships, uh, you know, the Michael Anton uh, thing. So... There are some reasons for, for optimism, and uh, Donald Trump has come up with a plan if he takes power in 2024. Instead of just getting rid of the top 2,000 civil servants, he's come up with a plan to get rid of the top 50,000 and install his people. And so in 2016, he didn't make much of an effort to recruit people, but now his side has gone to considerable efforts to recruit people who will take power as leading civil servants who can simply be appointed by the president, if uh, Donald Trump or probably any Republican takes over, there is now a, a deep bench to put into effect these policies. Yeah, I mean, I understand he he gets a lot of flack. I think you know I, I follow Paul Godfrey pretty pretty well, and he he was very disappointed in in the in sort of I, I don't think he liked I don't think many people like intellectual liked his sort of style and I really didn't at first. Um, but you are sort of hemmed in by what the system allows you to do in the current government, right? You have to get your appointees must be um, confirmed by the elite that doesn't like you. You mm. kind of have to give them bones. There are tens of thousands of people you can simply appoint that, that do not need confirmation. The, the number of people that need confirmation are, are something like a hundred or 200. Oh, oh. But how how much micromanaging would have to occur to vet those people? It's already know? occurred. Yeah. There are thousands of people who've already been vetted to be pro MAGA and who are ready to well, to go to work if oh. uh, Republicans win in twenty twenty four. Well, I, I'm in twenty sixteen. How many were? Oh, there wasn't. You know? He wasn't prepared. But this time, yeah, Republicans have learned a lesson, and now they've got a deep bench of thousands of people who've been vetted who are ready to move into government and implement a, you know, a nationalist agenda. You know, I, I hope so. I mean, I, I look what they, I, I was a very, um, I wasn't like aware of my surroundings back then, but I, I look how they, what they did to Pat Buchanan. Um, they called him every dirty thing they could. And he was a very polite, intelligent man who's wrote many, written many books. So he's not an idiot. Um, and I don't think they treated him in a very good way. I, it's almost like you need someone like a Trump to sort of just absorb everything. And it doesn't, it, it never bothered him. I mean, he, he accused Ted Cruz of being the Zodiac killer. Like he applied it and, <laughs> and we're just wild and crazy. I, I you know, if, if we're on the, if we're on the boat to hell, I mean, at least some humor would be nice. And I, I, I kind of enjoyed that. I missed that, you know, like what, like, uh, and that was one of many wild and crazy things that he, uh, he brought up. I, I, I just, I see like, 
maybe it's just against my nature that the, that that's concerning and why it's sort of like beating me down. So for and for example, the Soviet leftism seemingly was very uh, masculine. You know, we're we're going to do stuff, and you if you stand in our way, we'll get rid of you, either bullet, labor camp, whatever. So fall in line, or you know, accept your fate. This iteration of leftism seems to be very uh, feminized. You know, we'll we'll be nagged, belittled, uh, like like you you know when you were a kid and your mom wagged her finger at you, made you sit in the corner or something. It's just very against my nature, and and that's maybe why I'm very pessimistic. Right? I'd I'd rather know you have a binary, you know, there's a black and white choice. We're really not offered that in our current system. It's very feminized. I, I don't know if you have any um, yeah, disagreements yes, or agreements. No, there, I, so. I, I, I agree with that. And in large part is because the feminists have been very effective and liberals have been very effective. And the left has been very effective at seizing the, the high ground of culture. And the right has to produce its own elites who are ready to take over. And the, the right needs to produce uh, sterling culture to, to challenge uh, left-wing culture. And we have to understand how, how we got here. So one of the fundamental distinctions between the conservative and the left-wing point of view is the, the buffered self versus the porous self. So the medieval conception of the self is that we were porous, that there were good spirits, evil spirits, that uh, what was going on in your bedroom next door, if it was heinous, uh, you know, that affected me. It created contagion so that like if if Jeffrey Epstein gave me $25,000, that that money was contaminated, right? That's a traditional perspective, that there are magical qualities to, to things, that there's, there's good and evil forces all around us. And so our selves are porous. Therefore, we need to constantly be on alert for contagion. The left-wing perspective, which has triumphed in elite circles, is that the self is buffered, so that what goes on in, in your bedroom doesn't affect me, and so that the money does not carry contagion, and that uh, if someone chooses to have a lot of sexual partners, that, that, you know, that doesn't make any difference for society for anyone else these are just buffered autonomous strategic agents so the the conservative is always on alert for spreading contagion and the the liberal is constantly on alert for you know what they see as ignorance and backwardness and reversion to you know uh, primitive ways of thinking so what we have is this class clash of cosmologies and i think that the more clarity we can get about how the playing field we're operating on has been rigged uh, the more effective we'll be yeah i just don't think the mainstream opposition it, at least during my lifetime has seemingly uh, they punch uh to the right so this alternate cosmology that needs to exist has been beaten down by the supposed people that are supposed to combat the other cosmology. They just seem like a rear guard. Um, but what, what do you think about, and maybe why I'm a, a not so optimistic, to be an elite, you most likely have to live in, in somewhat of an elite life. You have to go to college, marry someone that went to college. So, you know, very bourgeois, right? Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, I mean, it's primarily, I think, a matter of how you speak. 
you have to speak in certain ways, and that signifies whether you're a lead or not. Yes, but with that, we know that uh, women who go to college, educated women, uh, do not. We know uh, feminine nature tends to uh, the the idea the um, the beliefs of women tend to cluster around the average, and and we you know men live on the fringe a lot more than women do. Yes, so. To be to to push this new cosmology, you have to be uh, on the fringe because it is a considered to be a uh, detrimental thought, belief system, whatever. But when you're trying to live a bourgeois life, to marry and, and to these things, uh, for to women who will be not on your side, uh, and, and it seems every year that goes by the elite women that are produced are more and more radical, more and more against traditional things. So, I mean, how can we, how can we create an alternate elite when you need women uh, to, you know, to live this bourgeois life and they tend to be the most ardent defenders of the leftist cosmology by social pressures or they're seeking status or, you know, just not being very, uh, you know, they don't rock the boat. It, it seems like that that aspect of life and society has been taken over by the left through decades of of conditioning. Right. And, it, and it, don't, has. it has. And so and, and there's no quick solution to that. There you'd is have no to, quick solution. No. You'd have to basically take power and then ban. Kick out all the professors and have right wing professors, basically uh, kick out all the people in churches and have traditional right wing uh, clergy. Uh, and there's that doesn't seem like that's on the horizon anytime soon. No, I, I don't think we have to ban professors or burn, ban you know left wing churches. I, I think we need to do a better job of articulating how the playing field is slanted and incentivize people, such as particularly women. So if there are right wing power centers that that women aspire to join, then they will respond to those social cues. For, for example. Uh, most Orthodox Jews are virgins when they get married. So most Orthodox Jews live in places like Beverly Hills, Manhattan, Brooklyn, right? They live in the belly of the beast, and yet they are able to maintain their mores. So maybe there's something to be learned from that. I would assume that there are traditional Christian denominations where most uh, members are still virgins when they get married. So we, we have to, you know, how do we... How do we bring people into our traditional religious movement? We, we have to provide them with a sense of community and meaning in life and a sense of transcendence and just an all-encompassing experience that is superior to what the, the, the alternatives are. And so women, women don't like, generally speaking, being the recipient of dirty jokes. You know, women don't like being the recipient of predatory male sexuality. And if you set up these islands of relative safety for women, such as in traditional religious communities, uh, women will often act in their self-interest. So I, I know, you know, women who used to go to more liberal synagogues found that they're more at ease in orthodox synagogues because nobody in an orthodox synagogue is telling them a dirty joke. Uh, that that they are not being preyed upon sexually in, in an Orthodox synagogue. So we need to create, you know, safe spaces where people want to come and hang out and donate money. I always have this joke that, um, 
that the greatest trick men ever pulled on a woman was to convince her that putting out was female empowerment. Yes. Um, it really has broken down. Um, I've come to realize that women, if everything is equal, women really don't need men. Uh, they can have, cause they're not driven so much by sexual desire. Uh, they want safety, security, companionship. They can get that in other ways. Um, especially if they're allowed their own job, uh, and their girlfriends and all this type of stuff. It seems like men, the competitive advantage that men had was our careers, our, um, our work outside of the home. And since that has been broken down, we're now, uh, women are in, in a lot of ways, cause home life has gotten so much easier. I mean, women probably were just bored, right? After World War II, it was working at home was, or being a homemaker was fairly easy compared to 50 years before. They probably got bored with it. But it seems like men need that competitive advantage. And the only way for me to see that women's mindset changes is women's opinion tends to comport to, at least it used to, to the man who they, who, uh, who they were with. And in, in, in previous generations a woman sort of had to be with a man to live a comfortable life that has we have sort of broken that relationship so women are sort of left to sort of like the the overarching societal uh thoughts and, and it's that tends to be very leftist and i don't see where women who are convinced to get jobs and to put off marriage and men and and, and children are going to change all of a sudden right it, they're, they're like going to die out you just said women who are convinced to put off marriage and have kids they're not going to change no they're not going to change they're going to die out the type of women who have kids are not going to be those women so that type of thinking will be increasingly bred out of the people but don't you have a lower iq population with that uh as, yeah, as that, that's, that's a problem, but you also have a lot of traditional women who are above average in IQ who are having a lot of kids. So when, when I go to an Orthodox synagogue, the average number of kids that a couple have is probably around five or six. And these are all people with above average IQs. And there are also, you know, Mormons uh, have, have a lot of kids. There are a lot of traditional people ha having a lot of kids. And there are, you know, reasons for, for hope. I, I guess, um, <laughs> uh, I guess, uh, Rome wasn't built in a day. And so I guess you sow the seeds uh, more or less. Um, I, I just, I, you know, when you look at your, maybe in a hundred years and again, uh, from now, the culture will be, uh, more moral and better and stuff. But when you, when you're living in the cultural decline and moral decline and depravity and it's, um, it's a little discouraging. And I know you seem to be more optimistic than me. Uh, I, I find the only way, at least for me, the only way to go up is to reach rock bottom, sort of like an alcoholic. Now I know reaching rock bottom is, is there's a lot of uncertainty. Security goes out the window it could be a drastic overhaul of, of society. Uh, and I really don't want to be a part of that because that could leave me in a very precarious position. Uh, and most people, it seems that the only way to go up is to hit the bottom. And we haven't hit the bottom yet. 
Right, but you you get to choose where you put your attention. Like you could choose to put your attention on your local church and and building it up, or you could choose to put your attention on inspiring literature. You could choose to put your attention on inspiring music. You could choose to put your attention on your friends, on, on your family, on, on a volunteer position, on some cultural or religious uh, club that you've joined, or on, on your hobbies. You get to choose where you put your attention. You could tune into the channel of gratitude. You could tune into the channel of you know seeing God in the world. You can tune into the, the channel of the transcendent you can choose which channel that you tune into. So you are frequently choosing to tune into the channel of despair, and you do that because it has some sort of reward for you. You feel like it inoculates you against the worst pain of you know, hoping for something different and then being disappointed. But d- despair is the channel that you choose to tune into. There are a lot of other channels that you could be tuning into. I, I don't want to put myself as a complete pessimist. I, I'm not sure if it's too much to spare. I'm just not all that encouraged by the uh, current situation. Maybe that's a better way to say that. Maybe it's the same thing, but uh, uh, I'm not in depression over our current situation. It's just sad to me that such a great people who forged a nation out of the wilderness, basically, um, have lost our way. And I don't know the answer. I know that we've lost our way. I just, I don't have any answers to how to get us back on the right track. That That's sort of where I'm not encouraged by, and it doesn't seem like there's a will by our elites to get us on the right path either. Our elites identify with other elites, um, not with our own people. Now, and maybe could, that should... You could get but, in touch yeah. with the reality that the outside world is far more complicated then you can possibly understand and that should inculcate in you a sense of humility and and wonder it doesn't have to inculcate in you a, a sense of despair what's going on is far more complicated than what you or i can understand or we can get a glimmerings about you know the what's what's going on and what's driving it there are just so many variables there are just so many sources of, of information and i would think that that a man of faith you know recognizes his humanity and his fallibility and his you know lack of ability to change things around him and you know, recognize that man is man and God is God and uh, God is good and God's going to make everything right in the end. And it's only incumbent upon you not to finish the task, but yet you may not desist from it. So you recognize that you can't finish the task of saving America and yet you, sh- you should not give it up. And you should also not be you know, focused on, on America, most of the time, you should be focused on the things that you can control, not on things that you can't control. I, I'm more discouraged about, it's, it's sort of like, um, I have a lot of respect for somebody like Charles Martel, uh, who stood up to the more invasion of France. This sort of masculine okay we're here we're, we're coming out to the battlefield and it's our life on the line and if you win okay you get our women and our spoils if we win well we drive you out forever and we don't have to worry about you anymore it, it, it this sort of fight is more uh amenable to sort of my view on it's much more dangerous uh but it's it sort of you're gonna go down go down swinging 
You yeah, know, that's, a, that's a romantic view, and it's, it's yeah. an ineffective view. I, I would suggest instead the attitude of George Washington. So George Washington lost virtually every battle he ever fought, and yet he won the war. Uh, George Washington saw that his troops were being devastated by smallpox while the British troops weren't because the British troops were vaccinated and his troops, George Washington's troops were not. So George Washington insisted that his troops get vaccinated against smallpox. He stopped the, the epidemic and he kept retreating and he preserved his army. He preserved his side because all he had to do was to survive and eventually he was going to win. So Washington lost virtually every battle and yet he won the war. So maybe maybe there are better examples than Charles Martel. Yeah, I mean that that was a good strategy by any. Um, it's a good strategy by any native under uh, undermanned force just to continue being in the field. Uh, you know, the North Vietnamese fought the same sort of war, just lost almost every battle, just weren't willing to give up, and you know they won because of it. I, I think we're in a different sort of uh, spot in. Um, then, because it's not like China is enacting their way of life on the United States. It is our rulers who are enacting this life on us. And I think if you just like keep trying to last them out, I mean, I guess you'll, you could, especially if they're, if the way they want to live is just genic, you know, it doesn't really lend itself to a good, if you win, what, what are you winning? Are you winning a pile of ashes? Like a, you know, a, an apocalyptic battle between good and evil to just, you know, solve these things for all time. And it's just not, not a, an effective strategy. So you can build up, you know, safe places, islands of, of hope and transcendence and God. You can uh, reproduce, you can uh, donate, you can donate your time, money, you can uh, form bonds with people and, you can control the things that you can control and the things that you can't control, you turn it over to God and you have an appropriate sense of your own humanity and, and fallibility. So you don't take your own self so seriously in your projections of inevitable despair and, and you know, recognize how destructive this this desire for, you know, one apocalyptic battle to forever resolve good and evil. That's uh, that that may be appealing to you for, for various reasons, but it's a really ineffective uh it's really an effective fantasy. It, it uh, just like I could, you know, I could sit around in, you know, various erotic fantasies and it just doesn't do me any good. I am much better spending my time and my mental space on, on other things other than erotic fantasies. And so too, this sort of apocalyptic Charles Mattel fantasy of, of one bottle, battle to resolve good and evil is, is a destructive fantasy. It's, it's not going to, it's not going to lead you in good places. There, there, are, there are more adaptive fantasies. Well, no, I know now like doing that would be suicidal and, and it's not, um, it's not good to engage in suicidal behavior. You have to be smarter with what you do. I just don't know. I, I know you've offered up some things, but maybe it's just like the, I want, I want tangible short-term gains that I can observe. And all these are very incremental centuries in the making sort of uh, uh gains that i know as a european i should be applauding because of long-term thinking and stuff it's just hard to you know like when when you're building the notre dame cathedral and it takes hundreds of years to build it completely at least you can see results in your lifetime you know when, when everything is under the surface it's hard to keep pushing forward 
Um, well, that's because your focus is on things you can't control. You can see yeah. results today. I, I don't know what it is that you most need to do in, in your life right now, but you could do some things right now towards the things that you most need to do. As long as you're spending time, a great deal of time, ruminating on things that you can't control, that's going to be maladaptive. Uh, we, we're designed, we work on spending time on the things that we do have considerable influence over. And then everything above that, like I look at society and the world and, and politics for fun uh, because I, I realize that I only have very you know, limited influence. Uh, but if I'm spending you know, hours a day thinking about things I can't control, that's maladaptive. On the other hand, if I'm spending most of my mental space thinking about things that I can't control, then that's adaptive. No, I, I agree. And in, in my own personal life, you know, I, I buy American when I can, trying to find a wife, hopefully get married, have kids. Um, speaking of getting ready for stuff, I got to get ready for church here soon. Okay. Um, but, you know, these, it, it's, you know, when, when things tend to fall um, the wrong way for you, it's kind of like, waving at windmills and you just um uh you have these thoughts you know and uh and when things don't happen the way you want them to i i I do have a control the controllables right so i can't there's no reason to get mad at joe biden's dementia because the man has dementia and he won't be able to say things clearly why get mad at that you know i i can't control that right um but uh you can't control makes me... anything except your own reactions and your own choices, and you can't even fully control them, but you can have some influence. But you've got no control over virtually anything outside of yourself. No, that's that's true. And the and uh, um, here I, I came to I came to make a little quip about um, the multiculturalism cult, and now you you've given me uh, you're my own personal psychiatrist now. So. I... <laughs> talking me down i no i do i it's been a while but i do um you, you do have a way of uh of sucking people in and and then pushing them away and so it's whatever uh i, I like your um your sarcasm but uh you do you do sort of needle people to, as well and it's sort of like this um this interesting dynamic that you uh you can you you have I don't know if that offends you or not, but no, um, no, I mean nothing. That... Nothing offends me, and I, I don't even understand, you know, my own dynamics. Like, you know, I just I speak and I act and I have impulses, and I'm sure there are a lot of things that you see much more clearly about me than I see about myself. And so that's another example. I don't even control myself, right? I have some influence over myself, but I don't have control over these dynamics that you're talking about. I, I just have some a little bit of influence over them. Yeah, like I. Uh... I, I don't want to get involved in this, but I will say, so like, you know, as a right leaning man, you know, you, your, your instinct is, I believe your instinct to say that the, you know, people in charge and the experts have a knowledge of, of, of certain things and aspects. And that, that is true. Uh, they're very, the way the system is set up is seemingly a very niche understanding of something like a very particular thing they understand very well, but how it, is incorporated into the bigger picture is a lacking of understanding, at least in my opinion, I think that's how the experts uh, uh, work. But like, you know, the, this monkeypox example, right? This is why, at least for me, I distrust almost any expert because obviously we know who, 
gets monkeypox and how monkeypox is spread. And, um, and no one's willing to say it because it's against a protected group. So everything the experts say is in a political lens. At least that's how I view uh, the, these things. In, in such an um, uh, inclusionary world, right, you can't offend these protected groups. And I, I've just lost a lot of my trust of the people in charge that are supposed to be in charge because their ideology influences everything about the way they view practical things. Um, so maybe, maybe, that, maybe that's where my despair, well, I don't call it despair, where I am not as encouraged um, because everything is drenched in ideology. Maybe everything always was. It just seems uh, on hyperdrive now. Well, the, the left has is, is won in the culture wars, and the left occupies virtually all of the upper rungs of, of culture, and they uh, they control almost all our institutions. Yeah, yeah. I would agree with that. I I, uh, I know you've offered um, remedies. It just uh, the I guess the romantic in me likes the. Uh, even though it was a much harsher world, a world I probably would not have survived childhood in. <laughs> um, yeah. It, uh, it seemed to be much more cohesive and, and proud of itself. We live, in a, we live in a society that is hates itself. And maybe the elites aren't offering up their necks, but they're convincing normal people to offer up their necks uh, to be slit. You know, metaphorically speaking, of course. Um, I, I have a, a 12 set sponsee who's in his 50s, who has zero military experience. He has zero experience with weapons, but he was ready to leave his wife and travel to the Middle East to fight for Christians. God bless that man. But uh, that's insane. No, it is. His, it is. He's in his 50s. <laughs> he has no weapons experience. He has no military experience. He's got a wife. And he's willing to leave all that and go to the Middle East to fight for Christians. I mean, that's insane thinking. Well, you shouldn't leave your wife and uh, put her in a bad spot. That's uh, that's sort of your obligation as a as a married person. Um, yeah, that one's hard. I mean, I. I it's not hard. The, it's absolutely insane. He can't be. He's in his fifties. No, I mean, he has no expertise. That's insane thinking. People thinking no, it, that it, way it, is is nuts. I wasn't saying his decision was hard. I meant my yeah. view on the the situation about Christians that are persecuted throughout the world. Right. It's a very tough, it's a juxtaposition. You have to, that Christian, you know, being a Christian, you, your life is suffering. And there's no greater sacrifice than to be a martyr, uh, especially in lands that hate you. And I, I want to give assistance. I don't know what assistance means in, in the current context. Uh, money, guns, safety, I, or, you know, but I don't... Um, I, I mean, America can put a lot of pressure to, to ensure the safety of Christians if they wanted to, just because they're our money. But oh, that's a bit different topic, I guess. But no, I understand what you, you know, you, you don't want to put yourself or your family in a very compromised position over something that is suicidal. Yes. That, that's destructive thinking. Yes. Uh, like, you know, invading the capital. Even it showed some fight in Moxie, even though it's illegal, and I, I disavow illegal things. 
it really didn't do anything. It was a very destructive act because were you really thinking you were going to return the votes? No, no, that, that wasn't a, that wasn't a, a possibility. They were just going to what they did. They moved out until the people left and they came back in and did what they had to do. Uh, there are there are behaviors that are destructive. We saw this with the alt right. In every turn, there was destructive behavior, which was ridiculous and uh, really put a black eye on any sort of like real right wing uh, opposition to the current morality. So it is good to not be destructive. Um, I just uh, it's good to live in reality. During the LA riots, yeah. there was a preacher who went out where the looting was taking place, and he held up a sign saying, uh, "God says, do not steal." And he got murdered. So if there's mass looting going on, don't go there and hold out a sign saying, God says, do not murder. Like, Mur- do something Murder? Effective. You mean, you uh, mean do not he steal. got, he got murdered he... for holding up a sign saying, do not steal. I was trying to be tongue in cheek by saying, you mean he got in the way of that baseball bat? It was his fault. You yeah. Know, he should have moved. Yeah. But he shouldn't have been there um, in the first place. Like, don't, don't throw your life away just because it feels good. This is where living in, in different societies in an earlier time would have been. I mean, the Romans didn't tolerate any sort of nonsense like that. They would have sent the legions in and um, like with your people, you know, they, your people got a little bit rowdy and they. They slaughtered them. Yeah, they, they yeah, slaughtered the, the Jews, and but they also paid, paid a huge price. Uh, you know, I have no idea if it was in Rome's strategic interest to exert that much uh uh, military might, but if it was in their strategic interest, then it was in their strategic interest. But if they misjudged their strategic interest, then not just Jews suffered, but Rome suffered. I, I don't know enough about Rome's point of view. You, you, you know, and any sort of uh, anti-establishment movement has to be done in the shadows until you are strong enough to to make a move. Now, I, I read the history of the Russian Revolution here in the last couple months. And their ability to pinpoint almost exactly when uh, the weakness of the Kerensky government and to move. And they moved swiftly. They moved with a, well, in a lot of ways, they had a very utopian, religious, apocalyptic sort of feeling on it that they were going to overcome just because they were on the right side of history. Uh, but they did choose the right moment, right? They didn't, they didn't fight against the czar's troops uh, they had someone else do that, and then they moved against a very unpopular, weak system. I don't think the right in this country can move to get the to get a society we want until that uh, environment is is there for the taking. And it's just when will that happen? I mean, do you believe that we can claw our way back in the current system, uh, or do you have do you view that the system has to get even worse and more decadent before a change? for the good can happen. I think some things can be ameliorated. I, I mean, I just don't know enough to have a, a really strong opinion, but I mean, I have hope and I think there are things we can do. Uh, I don't have a definitive view. Okay. That, that's understandable. Um, I guess as a religious man, it's the, it's the solace that yeah, God, God is God and yeah, 40 God is 40 and there's absolutely <laughs> no relationship now, in, in power between God and 40, like God runs the universe, 40 does not. Yeah, and at the end, God will have his vengeance and, um, and uh, exactly. punish those who uh, deserve, him. Yeah. deserve it. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, I mean, once again, you talked me down off the ledge, and I came <laughs> came in here for like a five minute thing. But yeah, thanks for the invite. And, yeah, uh, good to see. I, you. I like to I like to pop in every couple months and then unload on you and the very meta. I, I, I'm more into the meta than the particular. Yeah. Um, because I think getting bogged down in the particularity is like a very boomer thing, you know. Yeah. Just you know, just vote the right way, and everything will be fine. But um. Right, man. I'll uh, get back to your show. <laughs> okay, bro. Take care, man. Mm-hmm. Okay, so I was talking to Laponius about the Constitution the the other day, and he was complaining that there are things going on in America right now that are not in accord with the Constitution. And I was just talking with Rustin about God. Like, God is real if you make God real. But if you and your community do things to bring God down into this earth, into your community, then God becomes real. But if you don't do things to bring God into your life, then there is no God in in your life. And so the Constitution exists, but it only has power and force if we believe in a particular narrative, if we support particular narratives, if we have power. Right, the the Constitution in and of itself doesn't have power. Right, there, there's no set of legal institutions. There, there are no policy prescriptions. There are no laws that exist apart from narratives that give them meaning. Right, so I'm looking at uh, Ronnie Goodman's book on conservative oppression. So for every Constitution, for every law, there is a story. Right, there is an epic. For every Decalogue, there is a scripture. You don't just have the Ten Commandments. You have a story about how God came down to earth and gave the Ten Commandments to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai approximately 3,200 years ago. So the Constitution, God, right and wrong, only have meaning in the context of narrative. Right. So law is not just a system of rules to be observed. It's part of a narrative. Right, so law and narrative, law and constitution and narrative, law, God, religion, morality and narrative are inseparably related. Like God only has meaning if we have a story about God and what he wants for us. So every time we we have a prescription for changing the world, right, we have to locate it in a story. We have to locate it within a history, within a destiny, within a beginning and end, within an explanation and, and purpose. Okay, let's have a look at uh, this story here from The Hollywood Reporter about a predatory Hollywood producer. Right. Is Eric Weinberg Hollywood's most prolific predator? So last month, the police arrested the Scrubs and California Cation writer-producer on 20 charges of sexual assault, including rape. Speaking publicly for the first time, his victims share their stories and reveal how they came together to seek justice. He's taken everything he's allowed to take from me. Is Eric Weinberg Hollywood's most prolific predator? Last month, police arrested the Scrubs and Californication writer-producer on 20 charges of sexual assault, including rape. Speaking publicly for the first time, his alleged victims share their stories and reveal how they came together to seek justice. He's taken everything he's allowed to take from me. Editor's Note 
This story contains detailed descriptions of alleged sexual assaults. In February 2019, Gil Ramirez put out a query on Twitter on behalf of his friend, Avian Anderson. Hey folks in the LA region. I have a friend that has been asked by Eric Weinberg to take photos of her, he tweeted. Can you help me do a little research on him? Has anyone heard of him? Weinberg initially approached Anderson, then a 29-year-old storyboard artist, in the parking lot of a Ralph's in North Hollywood. The then 58-year-old introduced himself as a writer-producer for the hit show Scrubs, in addition to being an amateur photographer. She recalls that he asked if she modeled and would like to shoot with him. I think if you just look at it as an appreciation of the sculpture of your body, you'll really love your photos. Okay, so the, the way that the porn industry gets people in is they run ads about uh, figure modeling. And so earn hundreds of dollars a day to be a figure model. And so figure model is a euphemism for nude modeling. So here's a woman, a 29-year-old woman, this woman here on the right, right, who's approached in a grocery store by a 60-year-old dude who wants to take nude photos of her at his home. So I'm just curious, how would you react? So I was asked to pose nude by the late painter Don Bacardi. All right, famous painter. He wanted to paint me naked. And it was, I didn't struggle over that. I didn't like put an announcement on Twitter and say, is this, is this, you know, a, a safe thing to do? Is, you know, Don Bacardi a, an upstanding citizen? Uh, it, it wasn't even a struggle for me, even though I had, I had friends who said, oh, you should absolutely do it. It was all irrelevant to me. There was no way I was going to pay, pose naked for photos. So, you know, what's going on with people who are struggling over whether or not to consent to some dude who's 30 years older than them, asking them to pose naked for the, him at their home? So an Orthodox woman would not struggle over this. A, a traditional Christian woman would not struggle over this. A traditional person would not struggle over this. Only someone who's been shorn of traditional protections, all right? So from a trad, a, a traditional perspective on life, virginity is something that's valuable, and you don't just show your naked body to anyone. There is, there is a holiness to your body, and you just it would never occur to you that some stranger who hits you up in a grocery store and he really is a, a TV producer or writer, it would not occur to you to go you know, pose, pose naked. But if you've been shorn of these traditional protections, right, any trad would not be vulnerable to this predator. But feminism has removed these protections. Secular humanism, liberalism has removed these protections by denying that there is any sacredness to the human body, by denying that there is any virtue to virginity and to monogamy. And so... People who, who buy into the feminist, liberal, secular perspective on life, they have been shorn of protections, and all they have left are, are law enforcement who only come along after something has gone wrong, generally speaking, and then you know take back the night marches and invocations about rape culture. But these women are vulnerable because of feminism, because of these modern, secular, liberal, left-wing 
perspectives on life that say there is no holiness to the human body, that uh, God is not real, that there is no virtue to virginity, and there is you know no virtue to you know protecting your your traditional assumptions about about right and wrong. So these women just get laid wide open for this type of abuse by feminism. ITLL be empowering for sure, he later texted her. Over the next week and a half, Anderson did her due diligence. Weinberg explained that he didn't have a public portfolio of his work because he didn't want TV execs finding my name next to photos of gorgeous models and actresses. Right, so she's doing her due diligence. I mean, this is the secular left-wing feminist approach to, to life. Some old dude approaches you in a supermarket and says, hey, I'd love you to pose naked for me at my home. And, oh, I'm going to go do my due diligence. That's the liberal approach to life. It's the Buffett approach to life. All right. The porous approach to life is that we don't want to allow in contagion. So a a conservative approach, a traditional approach, is that our, our lives are porous, that we are affected by what's going on around us, and we would never want to put ourselves in a position where some stranger is taking naked photos of us. But the liberal left-wing conception is that we are not porous individuals, but we are buffered, right? We have a buffer around us, that we're autonomous, that we are strategic, that we can do our due diligence, that we can arrive at... You know, ethical rules for BDSM. We can arrive at, you know, ethical rules for taking nude photos at somebody's house. And if you just do your due diligence and you just arrive on, you know, the, the set of rules, that, that that's get, then going to protect you. But the best protection is the traditional understanding of life that we're porous, right? Meaning open, that, that what's going on with you affects me, that if I put myself in a location where, you know, other women have been posing naked, that that, that, that contains contagion. Like J.F. Garapi received something like $25,000 from Jeffrey Epstein, and J.F. Had, had no problem taking it using that money. A trad would be much more likely to think that money is dirty, that money carries contagion, and if I use it, bring it into my, my bank account, it, misfortune will follow. So the traditional conception of life is much more magical and mysterious that even money can carry contagion. The traditional perspective on life is that contagion is constantly threatening to overwhelm us. The liberal conception of life breaks down to the fundamental of there is ignorance and, uh, you know, traditional folkways and, and you know, religious conceptions that are constantly threatening to interfere with our rationality. So what's the bigger threat? If you're a trad, the biggest threat is contagion and disorder taking over. If you're liberal, the biggest threat is that ignorance, racism, bigotry, and an insufficient, you know, rules-based arrangement for taking naked photos at, you know, the home of this old dude who's, you know, probably done this dozens of times before. So how do you think it works out for, for these women? But he sent her examples of his photography. She looked into Weinberg's work history online. She corresponded with him via text about the type of shoot they do, vetoing ideas she found too risque or explicit. Weinberg had her speak with a model who vouched for him. Ramirez's Twitter post yielded no insight. And okay, so he has a speak to, to a model who, who vouches for him and she feels like she can veto, veto 
the type of shoot. So here's a woman considering going to a guy's house, getting naked, having him take photos of her, but she feels like she can arrange you know, how this is done. If we just have this you know, rules-based agreement that you know, even though I'm going to be naked and I'm going to be alone with this dude who's going to be much stronger than me, that uh, I will always be after control things. Like you get into a sexual interaction and you can't always control things. The best control is to have a longstanding committed relationship with the person. So from a traditional perspective, there's no such thing as marital rape. In marriage, both parties have obligations to the other. So a man can't decide, I'm not in the mood to go to work today. And the woman can't decide, you know, I'm not in the mood to have sex today. Right? Both parties have obligations to each other from, from a traditional perspective. There's no such thing as, as marital rape. But in the, the secular world, that everything needs to be negotiated. But the idea that you can go pose naked for someone, and if you just agree on the type of photos, or you can go have sex with someone, and if you just agree on, on you know what's okay sexually, so you don't like to be on your back, you need to be on top and... You know, there's absolutely, you know, no entrance to your back door and you don't like any degrading talk. And and when you say stop, it means stop. Right. The the modern liberal feminist approach is, oh, if we just, you know, arrive at this this set of rules, then then that will protect us. But in the in the throes of, you know, cock drunk ecstasy, right, the rules based order isn't always dispositive meaning effective. Uh, the the, the rules-based order doesn't always uh, determine what, what's happened. So I used to date a porn star, and she was traumatized. She, this is after she left the industry. She told me a story. She went went to a photo shoot, right? She's posing naked for, for a guy, right? She's a, she's a porn star, and uh, she's you know naked, and she's on her knees and, and uh, in, in the middle of the photo shoot, you know, he unzips his pants, you know, grabs her hips, you know, pumps her a few times and drops a, you know, big thick load inside of her. And she just felt so degraded. Like this is completely against the ethos of pornography. This was unconsensual. This was rape. But obviously she, she couldn't, you know, go to the police and say this is rape. She was a porn star. She was naked. She was spreading her pussy. And the, the photographer unprotected, you know, dropped trowel, plowed her and blew a load. And uh, she was traumatized and left the industry soon after. Another time, she went to a director's hotel room, and she was shocked and surprised that he would try to have sex with her. And when she got an agent, the agent required that uh, she do a compliance video with him, that she have sex with him before he would represent her. And he blew a load on her, and it was like the worst experience of her life. And she said, if I, if I ever bring that experience up, she would, she would lead me leave me. So people shorn of traditional protections think that they can just go out into the world and negotiate sexual exchanges and that uh, doesn't always work out. And so from a traditional point of view, this is crazy to think that you can just go out into the world and negotiate you know, nude photos with, with a stranger and, and have, it, have it work out. But uh, oh, that idea is too risque. Really, you think when you're naked and a much stronger guy there is alone with you, he's going to abide by your limits? And Anderson went to Weinberg's Los Feliz home for the shoot. 
A stand-up comedian as well, she brought some silly props along with her, including a realistic bird head. I told him exactly what I wanted and what I didn't want, she Okay, she told him what she wanted and what she didn't want. And she expected him to abide by that. So when you're in the throes of sexual passion, uh, many people don't always abide by sets of rules and principles and your 99 theses. And so you may come to a nude photo shoot, and I'm not blaming her, right? She, she played a considerable role in her own suffering, but she didn't choose to suffer like this. Right. She's been, you know, brainwashed by the secular liberal perspective. And so she is being shorn by a secular liberal society of the best protections against this kind of predatory behavior. So she thinks that, that if she shows up here, that uh, he's going to respect her as a stand-up comedian. And if, if a woman brings silly props, and including a realistic bird head, and you just tell the guy what you want and what you don't want, uh, he's going to abide by that. He's going to respect you as a stand-up comedian. Look, when the penis stands up, the brain leaves, right? A, a normal guy with a naked woman beside him is uh, not going to be 100% committed to her rules. He's not going to be 100% respectful of her identity as a stand-up comedian. He may not be 100% on board with the stories that she wants to tell about this interaction. He may not be intimidated or respectful of her status as an artist right? when a guy has a naked girl in front of him whom he finds attractive. Most thoughts, aside from his own sexual satisfaction, tend to leave his mind. Says, But he had other things in mind. I'm shocked. I'm shocked that this guy with, with a naked woman in front of him who was posing for him had other things in mind aside from her stand-up comedy career, her identity as an artist, her 99 thesis of what she wanted and, and didn't want, and her silly props. Wow, this is shocking. Like, what kind of world do women think they, they can go to a guy's house, get naked, you know, give him a list of, you know, 99 things that they like and don't like, and have a 100% expectation that he's going to abide by it? Right. Sex is incredibly powerful, and you really don't want to be in a situation where you're naked, you know, some stranger has an erection, and you're alone in a room, and you think he's just going to abide by your 99 dictates. Now, I'm happy to see this guy prosecuted for rape. If, if it's clear that he committed rape, then by all means, let's uh, prosecute these predators. But the main problem here is the secular liberal worldview that robs women of their most effective defenses so that they never get in these situations in the first place. The shoot began, she says, in a room that appeared to belong to a child, where Weinberg instructed her to disrobe and pose on top of a bed. While photographing her on the bed, Weinberg began adjusting Anderson's breasts, she says. Anderson had communicated to Weinberg over text that her main interest would be cool setups of costumes or lighting, making clear that even for more provocative shots, she was not comfortable with any bits show, ING, according to texts reviewed by THR. She says she went along with Weinberg's directions, never having done a photo shoot before, but began cracking jokes as she grew more uncomfortable with her. So he's doing things that she clearly doesn't want, and she's going along with it. I I'm not blaming her, she's in a vulnerable position, all right? But 
obviously her choices, which really weren't her choices. And she only has these choices because she lives in a secular liberal society and she's imbibed the feminist brainwash that she can come to a stranger's house, get naked, give him you know, 99 things that she likes and dislikes and automatically assume that he's going to abide by that. Her level of nudity. Just shut the fuck up, avian. Quit making this a joke. Anderson recalls Weinberg lashing out at her. Why do you always have to fight? A few days later, Anderson would detail this encounter in a social media post. Weinberg led Anderson upstairs, where he positioned her in a hallway arching her back against a wall. She says he then photographed himself touching her genitals before telling her. Just tell me when to stop. Okay, so if you're hanging out with a friend or a stranger and the person starts touching your, your genitals and that's without your, your permission and it's not something you want, then I'd suggest you get the hell out of there and you reassess how you got into that position in the first place. Now, on the other hand, let's say you're at a business meeting, you know, some dude starts manipulating your genitals. I mean, another approach would just be try to disarm him with a joke, or maybe you could make a rational and philosophical explanation about why it's not really in his best interest to continue to manipulate your genitals. So on the one hand, you can, you can argue rationally, you can try to diffuse the genital touching with a joke, or you can get the hell out of there, right? I would go with get the hell out of there, all right? That's, that's my advice, all right? You know, some, someone manipulating your genitals without your permission. I mean, tell me your life experience. Do you, do you, do you find it effective to, you know, crack a joke? Has that, has that you know, limited people from, uh, you know, unwanted uh, molestation? Or perhaps, you know, a profound philosophical argument. Has that been more effective or just getting the hell out of there? She didn't have time to react or respond before she felt him repeatedly insert his finger into her anus, she said. Okay, so let's say you're, you're out to dinner, you're at a bar, you're at the beach, you're, you're hanging out with people, and uh, some stranger starts inserting his fingers into your rectum. How do you respond? Do you... Crack a joke. A. Crack a joke. B. Do you make a learned philosophical argument about how this, you know, violates the, what's the non-harm principle that, that libertarians have, the, the non-aggression? This violates NAP, guy. This is, violates the non-aggression principle, what you're doing. Or do you just get the hell out of there? I would go with just get the hell out of there. I mean, that's just where I come from. We live in a world filled with contagion. We want to build a life that tries to limit contagion, right? And we, we need to have practices and principles and, and communities where we try to keep contagion under control. I mean, I'm trad. I think our number one threat is contagion, right? So we, we have filth and contagion and disease all around us, right? And when that starts seeping into our life, we need to do things to cleanse ourselves and to cleanse our community, right? So when the contagion builds up, you know, really bad things happen. And so we need other people, we need a community, we need practices and procedures and rituals to keep the contagion at bay, to keep impurity at bay, to keep the, the chronic genital flux at bay. Right? I, I think one should be repulsed by 
sexually transmitted diseases. I think we should stigmatize the reckless antisocial and self-destructive behavior that leads people to contact uh, sexually transmitted diseases. And we must have constant you know, purification going on in our life. Some people that might mean prayer. For other people, it might mean cold showers, isolation tank, uh, religious rituals, going to church, synagogue. But the world out there is absolutely filthy. We have to keep keep cleansing, keep purifying. So, so for example, I, I once lived in a place where in, in the living room there was a big poster from the, the Jackie Brown movie, and it's like some guy sticking a gun. You know, I don't want that in, in my living room. Right? I don't want you know, that kind of secular filth you know, confronting me every time I, I walk into a living room. In my room, all right, there's nothing but posters of uplifting things. That's purifying for me. I sometimes watch videos of Big Sur or Yosemite or you know, uplifting things to you know, purify the filth that is you know, continually threatening to you know, overcome my life. And you know, when, when people stick their fingers in your anus... I suggest that's the time to uh, cut ties with such a person and, and remove yourself from such a situation. Standing five feet compared with six foot two Weinberg and weighing only 98 pounds, Anderson says she went numb like. Okay, so if you're five foot two, you weigh 98 pounds. I would not suggest getting naked in, in a stranger's home. I mean, that's just where I come from, right? I believe we're porous, that, that other people can, can affect us. I, I know this woman, uh, accomplished woman, smart woman, but she would get into bed naked with guys that she was dating and then be shocked, absolutely shocked, when they would have sexual intercourse with her against her will. And she'd protest, and then they say, oh, let me make you feel better, and then they'd enter her through the back door and have her, their way with her that way. And so she gets raped twice, and then she continues to get naked into bed with guys or she goes to get her stuff from, you know, her ex-boyfriend and he, you know, forces her into rape. And so she's just going around getting raped all the time. If you're going around getting raped all the time, there may be things that you can do better. There may be more intelligent ways of going about life. Like a dead fish. According to Anderson, Weinberg then brought her to his bedroom and performed oral sex on Anderson to give her genitals what he called a glistening effect for the photos. Okay, so let's say some dude, you know, goes down on you and starts sucking off your, your genitals and he says, oh, this is only to give a glistening effect for, for my photos. All right, you can one, you know, try to tell him a joke or two, you can explain to him he's violating the, the non-aggression principle. Or three, you can get the hell out of there, right? If someone, you know, started filleting me and that wasn't something that was, was, I was down with, I, I wouldn't buy the explanation that, that she was just trying to make, you know, my genitals glisten for the, for the photo shoot. Now, I think the best situation here would to be not in this situation in the first place. She says she told him then and throughout the encounter that she was asexual. In okay, so how many women who are being raped have found it an effective strategy to inform their rapist that they are asexual? So do you think this approach has a 100% effectiveness? 
90% effectiveness. I would venture that this has pretty close to a 0% effectiveness. So the best thing to do is to not get naked with strangers, right? Trying to argue them out of the rape, I don't think is a terribly effective strategy. And telling someone who's, who's raping you that you're asexual, I'm going to bet that this guy didn't really give a damn whether or not she was asexual. Order to deflect Weinberg's repeated suggestions of anal sex, she says she performed oral sex on him. Okay, so someone's giving you repeated suggestions of, of anal sex and you think, like, how the hell can I get out of this situation? Oh, I'll just give him a blowjob, right? That's one approach. Another approach is to punch him in the nose and, and run and just get the hell out of there. So you can try to negotiate with rapists. You can offer them oral sex instead. You can try to tell them jokes. You can mount philosophical arguments. I think the, the best approach is to just get the hell out of there. At the conclusion of the alleged assault, she remembers Weinberg standing between her and the door as she dressed, thanking her for coming over and telling her another woman was on her way over for a shoot. You're not going to go to the police and tell everybody I raped you, right? She says Weinberg asked. She assured him she wouldn't. It took her three days to muster the courage, three days of not bathing to preserve the dried semen on her body, before she went to the police and submitted to a rape kit examination. So I would assume getting raped is pretty traumatizing. You know, I would think that the, the best strategy is to minimize the sort of situations where, where this can happen. Have you guys seen new documentary series House of Hammer about the Hammer family and uh, Army Hammer? Uh, the, the actor who's being accused of cannibalism and all sorts of heinous things. All right. Buckle your seatbelt. This was going to be the bet. If I won, I get to come over to your house with my bag of goodies. Uh, inside my bag of goodies, there are several different bundles of shibari rope. Shibari is a Japanese art of rope bondage. My bet was going to involve showing up at your place and completely tying you up and incapacitating you and then being able to do whatever I wanted to every single hole in your body until I was done with you. Okay, so most people don't start out with, with that approach, right? That was the result of a long series of, of interactions. So you may want to ask, like, how did I facilitate are there things that I said or did that you know laid me open to receiving some kind of message like that? And if you get a message like that, do you really want to maintain contact with that person? It seems to me, if someone gives me a message like that, I would not have any further contact. Now, you may just think, oh, he's just being kinky. I'm sure when he gets my 99 theses about the things that I like and the things that I don't like, he's just going to abide the dude will abide. Well, sometimes dudes don't abide. According to the police report, AVNA did not stop Weinberg at any time or state that she did not want him to touch or digitally penetrate her because she was afraid that he would become aggressive or stop her from leaving. She believed that if she allowed him to do what he wanted and stayed cordial with him, he would not become aggressive. When she returned home and took a bath, seeing her nude body for the first time since the shoot, she vomited. Anderson heard nothing from the LAPD in the weeks and months that followed. In that time, she describes how her mental health declined, along with her performance at work, and how she lost her dream job as an art director on an animated show. And then Anderson learned about the Facebook group. 
about a year after Anderson's alleged assault in January. So relying on the police, relying on your your secular codes, you know, relying on, on Facebook groups and messages to social media, not the most effective technique. The most effective technique is is what feminism has robbed from women. All right? So the trad values the body, sees holiness in the body, does not, you know, pose naked for, for strangers, and does not get into this sort of situation. You value your virginity, you value the, the holiness of your body, then you don't share it with, with strangers. But feminism has removed these these protections, right? You know, modern, well-educated professional women will not defend unsophisticated concepts of virginity and chastity, and as a result, they are less competent to control men's sexual advances than high school girls in the 1940s. I'm reading from Ronnie Goodman's book on conservative oppression. So the moderns invent concepts like date rape and date culture and a whole bunch of laws about sexual harassment to provide protection for women against seduction. Now, women who were once completely confident in securing for themselves this kind of protection with graceful and even elegant refusals. So feminism sees date rape and sexual harassment as lingering remnants of a patriarchy that was once unresisted and unabashed. But date rape and rape culture are side effects of feminist victories that are now being further exploited to secure more victories. So the hopelessness that women now feel before male sexual imperiousness is the natural consequence of the erosion of traditional values at the hands of feminism and liberalism and secularism. So when you reduce sex to the physical assuaging of a genital itch, you are depriving women of any basis for refusing sex beyond their bare disinclination. So you're no longer grounded in transcendent values such as chastity and virginity, and so your disinclination will seem arbitrary, something that might be overcome through male persistence. So liberals ground the refusal of sex in autonomous choice, but autonomous choice changes and can be changed by other people. So feminism is plunging women into perpetual sexual confusion and ambivalence, further inviting male persistence, for which expansive definitions of rape and sexual harassment are then offered as solutions. So if there is a rape culture, this is a social construction of feminism itself. It is the natural consequence of the psychic conflicts that feminism necessarily inculcates. Right? Having eviscerated the social understandings that allow women to refuse sex confidently, feminism then represents the ambivalence and confusion that ensues as the subtle, psychologically coercive machinations of patriarchal power, which leads to more galvanizing feminist consciousness and the desire for a far-off utopia in which genuine female agency will be conceivable. So only then will women finally rest assured that their ostensible desires are truly their own, and feminism holds itself out as the only path to this transformed world. But this never-ending journey has been created by feminism itself. It has deprived women of traditional sources of meaning that would better protect them. So the dominant liberal dispensation keeps creating the conditions for its own social vindication, conditions under which it recasts its efforts as simply rational justification. So feminism has molded women into this ethos of the disengaged, self-controlled, and self-reflexive buffered self. 
it has tried to reduce and do away with the lax and disorganized folkways of traditional femininity and shorn them of protections against male sexual imperiousness. So feminism has disenchanted sexuality. It's removed the magic and the mystery, just scratching a genital itch, just like the disenchantment of the world generally promoted by liberalism to cultivate a more disciplined and productive citizenry. And this is what the career woman exalted by feminism symbolizes. You know, the, the arrival of the technocratic egalitarianism of liberal culture in which every last vestige of traditional sentiment must be uprooted. So feminism comes from the imperiousness of the liberal point of view, which is bent on stigmatizing the housewife, bent on stigmatizing traditional folkways in the name of civilization. And these norms are always spread outward from elite circles through the badgering, bullying, and scolding of the unwashed masses whose capitulation will then be paraded as liberation. So liberals locate the meaning of feminism in the supersession of certain historic inequalities and prejudices, but conservatives locate it in the disciplines and the repressions of the buffered autonomous identity for which feminism is just a vehicle. So conservatives refuse to accept feminism at face value. There was an article in the New Yorker about uh, Orthodox women, Hasidic women in Brooklyn, and the writer just expresses her astonishment that what she expected to find would be self-effacing drudges worn down by a patriarchal family system turned out to be a remarkably energetic, mutually supportive community of women with strong families and thriving marriages. These women sped around like an intergalactic missile seemed to be occupied with worthy projects, just like Eleanor Roosevelt. They're as hospitable as welcome wagoneers. So why did the writer expect to encounter only self-effacing drudges in Hasidic Judaism? That was because her implicit embrace of the subtraction account. The subtraction account is that modern man is the result of subtracting the nefarious effects of religion, tradition, and folkways. So the liberal subtraction account compels us to see traditional folkways and institutions as confinements rather than sources of meaning and to see the ethos of the disengaged, self-controlled, self-reflexive, buffered self, not just as one value system, not just as one hero system among others, but the sine qua non of all values. So feminism defines the freedom, defines freedom as the freedom to be a feminist. So it must dismiss all who refuse that freedom as somehow deficient in the basic human agency powers that supposedly only feminism can liberate. This is all a bit intense for me. I'm going to take a little break here. Listen to decoding the in right wing media as a mean story. So yeah, it's just like such a glaring double standard. It's an irritating thing, isn't it? The um, differential standards. And, you know, the left is guilty of this too. If you want to see differences of standards of academic rigor being applied, for instance, just just try writing a, a paper with some sort of right-wing messages to it and it'll get subjected to some pretty rigorous methodological critiques. But, uh, yeah, I just don't get it. It's, it's like the Hillary Clinton emails, like the amount of gnashing of teeth and hand-wringing that will go on in these fears. And then they just turn a blind eye to the blatant lying that continues in the magosphere. I mean, Trump was just, his police was investigated, right, because of <laughs> having confidential information or whatever, or top-secret information, apparently, and... 
the whole thing about the Clinton emails was supposed to be not properly handling information. Handling, mm. yeah, but but now that's completely. Oh, but, but you see, Chris, that's I mean that raid on Mario Lago was just an example of the deep state overreach. Surely, I mean, is yeah. that, what, isn't that your take on it? That's a heterodox take on that. But hey, I got to say, I respect his willingness and ability to routinely piss people off across the spectrum. Okay, a little bit more from a different episode of Decoding the Gurus. You get a question where somebody presents it, you know, like, Oh, dear sir, pray tell, I, I came across this story about the Hunter Biden laptop, and I know nothing, I know nothing about it, but I'm purely curious if there is some legitimacy to some of the things that I may have heard on the grapevine, and... You know, you respond and say, oh, well, of course, there does seem to be validity to some parts of it, but that was never really in dispute. I mean, there were pictures and everybody knows Hunter Biden's a fuck up. So the question is really whether the allegations would relate to Joe Biden. That's why they're of any relevance. And, And there, there seems to be little. But the response is, oh, oh, sir, thank you for the answer. But, you know, I... I have seen in my travels uh, this article on the Daily Wire, and it mentions this. I don't. I know the Daily Wire isn't reliable, but also the Daily Mail has covered this aspect. And if you look at this one article, which appeared, and it goes on, right, mm-hmm. and it continues on and on, and as it goes on, it becomes clear the person has a very strong opinion. You know, they are not just working their way for it. They've they've got like a whole thesis on the thing and i hate that i hate that for oh please explain to me good sir i am but a humble traveler weary from my sojourn in the discourse trenches Mm. Mm. yeah somebody needs to tell these people that we are aware everybody knows what they're doing it has a name just asking questions jacking off jaq we're onto them it doesn't work it just annoys people What's the difference between that and sea lining, though? What's what's sea lining, I forget? Well, sea lining is that you barge into a conversation and kind of demand that people explain in detail about whatever you want them to talk about. Mm. I've heard people argue that the sea line cartoon isn't great because, like, if you just change some of the details, the sea line is actually quite reasonable, right? Like if somebody makes a racist comment offhand and then they're like, oh, excuse me, like, could you just explain more? And you're like, no, no, you know, go away. I don't want to talk about that. I think that's the difference. Just asking questions is the thing where you have a very clear conclusion that you already believe, but you present it in this full naive way of, oh, I just... I just have questions that I, I would like to answer. Joe Rogan is the kind of king of just asking questions approach, right? Yeah. And, okay. But the thing is, Matt, you said, you know, we're all, we all know what you're up to, but there's so many that don't. There's so many people that are like, Joe Rogan has an open mind. He's just a curious person. He doesn't mm-hmm. have an ideology. He's got, he's got no, you know, lean one way or the other. He just asks questions. That's all he does. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I didn't know this, but you told me that some terrible person on the Reddit said that I was wrong in saying that Joe Rogan uh, was right wing. I was very, yeah. very wrong about that. 
You know, um, the tone that you said, terrible person there, Matt, as well, is like, I, I know, I know you were being sarcastic, but I'm just, just <laughs> warning you that I actually think that, you know, I've experienced this online. People don't hear the tone. Or, so they're like, oh, Matt just called someone terrible. So just to say he had a twinkle in his eye when he said it, that's all. But yes, somebody has been taking you to task for saying that. That well, Joe Rogan is a right-wing partisan. How could yeah. you say that, Matt? On what basis? They mentioned a couple of times, you've only listened to six hours. <laughs> so on, what, on what basis? Which is not true because we've done uh, other episodes yeah. with Joe Rogan since yeah. then. So. Uh, there's a clip there in front of me from 17 hours ago on our Reddit. Um, we, we just say Joe Rogan is telling people to vote Republican. He must be that very special kind of left-winger tells people to vote republican i guess yeah why would i be confused you know so easy to get confused i'm just a simple man it is it's very hard i mean it's very difficult to spot joe rogan skew you know when we did the episode on him the clips you could 50 50 50 50 is he going to defend biden is he going to defend trump it was just not clear <laughs> and it, which way he leans it's all it's all unclear he i mean he spoke to bernie sanders he spoke uh, to Bernie Sanders, and he said in the primary that he might prefer Bernie Sanders. So, you know, people have got them all wrong, Matt. They've just got yeah. them all wrong. Oh, I, yeah. Matt, I hate it. Just log off, Chris. Log off. Well, they're all over, they're all over the place, Matt. You meet these people. <laughs> you meet them walking around in the street like pee zombies as well. But, yeah, so just, just asking questions is such an effective technique. And even, even though people make fun of it, there's memes floating around. It's now got its own little moniker and everything. It still works. It still works. This is like Matt Tybee, Glenn Greenwald's kind of thing as well. They're, they're not saying Alex Jones is right. They're just asking questions about the way he's treated in the mainstream media. Mm. Ho-hum. Well, Ho-hum. Ho-hum. Okay, ho-hum. That'll do it. Bye-bye.